Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, Season 3, Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. The Wirecard Saga is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you, Tom. I love the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome back, listeners. Or maybe I should be welcoming myself back. I had written so much of this episode many weeks ago and then, well, didn't release it. Thank you, Flu, and happy holidays. Let's review some of the latest developments in this saga. Let's get to the updates right now. Many of you think you know some of them. Certainly, Marcus Braun's trial opened December 8th in the higher, uh, Munich Higher Regional Court. Marky Mark, little Ollie Bellenhaus, and Von Erfer finally in the dock. In anticipation of the big day, Braun was moved to Stadelheim Prison in Munich, so really an opportunity to make all new friends. It's a little bit like the first day of new school, isn't it? The uh, trial is actually being held in a basement, which is fairly grim, but not nearly as grim as Braun was looking. Trademark black turtleneck, untucked, and apparently no longer in possession of a shaver. Meow. And whilst some may be pleased that at long last this trial has kicked off, not everyone is finding satisfaction in court. Now, before we get too excited or ahead of ourselves, no sooner had the trial kicked off than poor lead judge Marcus Fadish took ill and all proceedings from the 14th through the 16th were cancelled. And the trial resumed on Monday the 19th of December. Now, fasten in, folks, because this trial is going to be a long one. It is actually calendared for 100 trial days, but that doesn't mean 100 consecutive days. Rather, spread across the court's calendar and assuming no other illnesses, causes for delay, or motions, more on that in a moment, the trial isn't slated to wrap up before December 23. That's this year, December, or a year from Christmas. (laughs) Yes. Moreover, given the 474-page indictment, someone award the Munich public prosecutor a PhD in Wirecard, please, and the some 700 individual files investigators have assembled, it is really quite likely this trial will extend a good ways into 2024. Now, on day one, lead prosecutor Matthias Böhring spends essentially the greater part of the first day of his proceedings reading out the litany of charges. And when I say litany, I mean just the charge sheet alone runs to 89 pages. You can see why it took the better part of the day. Now, little talked about But listeners, do you know why the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office opened this investigation and when they did? Most of you would, well, be forgiven for assuming the investigation was opened after the collapse of the company in June 2020. But that isn't correct. We have to go back to short sellers. And if you've forgotten, go back to episode two of this entire podcast series if you've forgotten the role short sellers had in really breaking this story way, 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 way back when. Sir Chris Hone, British short seller and founder of hedge fund TCI, is the one that filed the criminal complaint against Wirecard 
back in early May 2020. That's right, two months before implosion. In late April 2020, Hahn sent a letter to the Wirecard board calling on them to fire Braun after KPMG failed to confirm those TPA revenues and not getting satisfaction, subsequently filed the criminal complaint with the Munich public prosecutor. A fun fact, Hahn was uh, Britain's Chancellor Rishi Sunak's former boss. Yeah. At any rate, Hahn made pots of money first off the drastic plunge in Wirecard stock the week KPMG came up empty-handed, and then cleaned up another $100 million when the company fully collapsed. So it was Hahn's complaint submitted to the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office in early May on behalf of his charity, the Children's Investment Fund, that had held shares in Wirecard, that now forms the basis for this criminal trial. That's right. It's not because of the alleged fraud. We'll come to that. The three judges preside, There are three judges presiding over the case. And recall, I told you a few episodes ago, no jury trial. And, well, hours and hours of reading the charges that I mentioned. And now also remember, the prosecutor's office is only looking at charges they believe they can prove from 2015 to mid-2020. Because Germany's statute of limitation bars them from crimes committed prior to 2015, and they have to be charges the Munich public prosecutor feels they can prove. And you know, I've said this, I've said this forever. This company was dirty from day one. So we're not seeing a trial of Wirecard from 2000 or late 1999 to 2020. All right, more on that in a minute. Okay, day two, bronze defense attorney, Alfred Dialon, spends two and a half hours with his opening remarks. Ready? Well, we already knew Braun maintains complete and utter innocence despite the offshore accounts he held in alias names and the destruction of his telegram IMs and some other rather, well, sketchy, dodgy, questionable activity. Okay, Dillam asserts that Braun is the victim here and turns on Bell on House. Hmm, are we surprised? Lil Ollie, who, recall, turned state's witness two years ago, is accused by Lerlam of being a liar and the primary perpetrator. Gosh, did everybody else forget the others? Dillam says the prosecutor's office has got it all wrong. Well, okay, forget all that evidence. Referring to the money in the TPA trust accounts, quote, the payments have not been forwarded to trust accounts, but have been shifted to shadow companies. Hmm. Dear Lom, are you onto something? He has identified four companies that Ballenhaus controlled that were used to embezzle the 1.9 billion. Okay, so back to that motion I mentioned a moment ago. Recall, the prosecutor says Wirecard never had those TPA revenues to begin with. That's what KPMG couldn't confirm, right? Dear Lom says, oh no, no, that money existed but it was stolen with the help of Bellenhaus, Marsalik, Bauer, and others. Braun, Dialam says, was apparently so utterly clueless 
<clears throat> that he only found out about the chicanery from the prosecution's investigative files that were turned over to defense counsel for trial prep. And hold on to that for thought as well, folks. But DLM doesn't stop there. He literally turns on the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office and accuses them of not only indulging Bellenhaus in his deceit, but of affirmatively refusing to follow the money trail that Derlam says clearly shows where those purloined funds went. Quote, the Public Prosecutor's Office has done nothing to clarify the actual crime. He goes on to accuse the prosecutor's office of intentionally concealing exculpatory evidence. Now, that's a serious allegation, folks. This isn't just your run-of-the-mill criminal defense lawyer making a strong argument for their client. Dierlam accuses bankruptcy administrator Jaffa, the Bundestag IC, and the Munich Higher Regional Court all of conspiring to conceal exculpatory evidence, and we've a false narrative. <laughs> Talk about slapping down the gauntlet. Pistols at dawn. How does he summarize? By formally applying to the court for a stay of the proceedings. That means everything stops. The trial stops. That's right. After all this time waiting for the trial to kick off, Dierlam now wants the trial paused, not for just a few days, but for months. Now, let's check back in on that claim of Braun only finding out what Marsalek, Bellenhaus, von Erwe, etc. had cooked up and run for the past decade plus, because it isn't clear how Braun or Dillam can possibly reconcile that claim when he's also claiming that the prosecutor's office waited only until a few weeks ago to share, quote, tens of thousands of documents and files with him and Braun, and that they can't possibly be expected to wade through all of this complex financial data and evidence whilst the trial proceeds. Well, how do you find out then if you haven't read the documents? All right. Unfortunately, some of Dierlam's defense of Braun really relies upon billions held in accounts belonging to, well, Wirecard's business partners and those accounts and transactions are not actually included in the indictment against Braun. Because remember, this was Hong's complaint as a shareholder. Yeah. Bottom line, those business partners and accounts and transactions, they're irrelevant to this trial. The dirty proceeds that wash through the company and line the pockets of so-called business partners aren't part of this set of fraud charges. Now, the court has yet to rule on the motion to temporarily stay the proceedings, but we can expect a ruling probably in the next week or two. Now, not surprisingly, given that the Munich PPO isn't just prosecuting Braun, von Erfer and Bellenhaus, but some 20 other wirecard defendants, there are believed to be still terabytes more data from related accounts that are still being analysed and have yet to be produced to the court. Quick sidebar for listeners. Under the German Criminal Code, every single document that in any way relates to the prosecution's case must actually be produced to the court during the trial. 
Unlike common law systems where summarization and just the most damning evidence can be produced, Germany's law requires anything of any potential, potential relevance to be introduced. And I've already told you there's some 42 terabytes of data thus far. Okay, so what was the response to this day two opener from Derlam? And not surprisingly, Bellenhaus's counsel, Florian Edder, gets up and says, rubbish and tosh, or words to that effect. Edder says, those TPA billions never existed. The entire company's profits were a sham, and this is consistent with what the Munich PPO is saying. Now here, I'll pause and note that I don't really fully agree, as there were profits being generated from the dirty money being laundered, say from binary options, online gambling, child porn, Russian mercenaries, nutraceutical scams, North Korean, purloined, virtual currencies, crypto, run-of-the-mill tax evasion, narcotics proceeds, organized crime, oh yeah, and someone probably legitimately using their Oyster card. Edis says, look, my client, Bellenhaus, didn't have to leave his no-extradition-treaty-with-Germany location in Dubai to come A, confess, and B, turn himself in just to make up stories. He says, Bellenhaus told the truth to prosecutors, and he's going to tell the same truth in court. Braun knew what a sham the entire thing was all along. Then Edda reminds the court that Braun's defense strategy is the one he used for years running the company, claiming to be the victim and counterattacking those that make unpleasant statements about Wirecard or his leadership. You have to admit, Edder scored a point there. End of day two, Ballenhaus takes the stand for the first time and calls Wirecard a, quote, cancer and asserts that there was a system of, quote, organized fraud, well, he's right about that, let by absolute CEO Braun. Oh, the bully. Mind you, this is from the guy who suddenly couldn't recall the name of the Luxembourgian shell company he was responsible for when questioned by the prosecutor. Not the most reliable witness, perhaps. On day three, Bullenhaus resumes testimony and nearly the first thing out of his mouth is the accusation that the fraud at Wirecard began long before 2015. <laughs> well, Ollie, you and I are in agreement on that point. Show of hands from the short sellers who held positions against Wirecard on that assertion. Poor little Ollie. He claims that Braun the bully forced them all to work in concert to ensure this fraud continued. And now he's scared for his life. And, and I think this may be my favorite quote thus far, quote, he didn't realize that he would go to bed with the rats and wake up with the plague. Priceless. Oh, Oliver, you missed your true calling on the stage. His testimony continues, alleging the financial data produced by Wirecard was, quote, little authentic, and transactions were unrealistic. He produces some charts and graphs and claims these, these prove uh, that Braun led the fraud from day one. He points to Braun and von Erfa and says those two pointedly ignored all the facts. According to Bellenhaus, the foreign, quote, shadow companies, 
those fabricated TPAs, he says, were used for Wirecard's fraud, made, quote, zero sales in the name and on behalf of Wirecard. Bellenhaus picks up on, or parrots back, depending on how you look at it, what he's told the prosecutor's office, and they've alleged in the indictment that these fake numbers served to hide the real situation at the company and all along just allowed Wirecard to effectively scam funds from lending banks and investors. Now, Bellenhaus was accused of deleting critical data in the Dubai offices as this whole mess was imploding. Derlam suggested Bellenhaus and Marsalek embezzled the TPA proceeds unbeknownst to Braun and that to conceal this duplicity, Bellenhaus intentionally shut down data service in Dubai before the KPMG auditors could gain access. Bellenhaus, who claimed to have purchased pre-owned servers off eBay, <laughs> yes, the billion-dollar tech company that purchases used IT equipment from eBay. <laughs> what next? Etsy? <laughs> Told the judge that because the equipment was so old and so outdated, he couldn't possibly have run complex payments and transactions on it. This was supposedly the shadow system they ran. Uh-huh. Now, recall, Dirlam's argument defending Braun was not helped by the release of Wirecard Insolvency Administrator Michael Yatha's fourth status report last year, which recounted some unfortunate details. Having obtained and analysed Wirecard and the TPA bank statements from the Singapore accounts dating back to 2006, and remember, 2006 to 2014 completely irrelevant to this case, Yava confirmed not only the trust accounts having never existed, and go back to episode 31 if you've forgotten some details, of the three trust accounts Yafa did find in Singapore, two held less than 3,000 euros, and one had approximately $2 million in it. Now, one of my favorite little details Yafa wrote about was the persistent use of the Hedgehog Pub and Nightclub on Clive Street that was apparently a go-to favorite of certain Wirecard Singapore personnel for financial transactions, such as withdrawing money. And when I say frequent, some 600 payments made to the Hedgehog, not counting the withdrawals. Virgo Entertainment, the private company that owned the club, was struck off Singapore's corporate registry a few years ago because mysteriously, they just happened to file for insolvency in the fall of 2020, only a couple of months after Wirecard imploded. And then their other entity, Venture Property Projects PTE Limited, was struck off at the end of that same year. Take a closer look at the three, Hedgehog, Virgo, Venture Property Projects, and the owners of all three, it is such a small world when you get right down to it, isn't it? Anywho, Yafa also asked MasterCard and Visa to check their records and see if they couldn't identify any transactions between Wirecard and the TPAs in Singapore. Response, no such companies, no transactions. So Yafa wrote in his report that, quote, Wirecard's claim to have run a profitable third-party business was wrong. Yafa also raised an eyebrow at the fact that after Wirecard went belly up, 
none of the supposed business partners approached him with any claims. Now, according to Wirecard's books, some 51 billion euros were supposedly shifted by these TPAs through Wirecard in just 2019 alone. In theory, they, like other vendors, would have suffered catastrophic losses when Wirecard fell apart. Shouldn't they have been creditors seeking recompense under the insolvency proceedings? Well, one would expect. But Yaffa writes, yeah, money laundering could also be a factor here. <laughs> yeah, you think? I don't know too many money laundering organizations or entities or even individuals who pop their head up uh, during an insolvency proceeding above the parapet and say, gee, golly, could, could we get some of that dirty money back? <laughs> but then, Dearlam has pointed out, very late in the case, the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office has located bank statements of third-party partners in Germany, which document deposits of 1 billion euros between 2016 and 2020. Now, Dierlam cited these statements as showing some 750 million euros flowing to four companies controlled by Bellenhaus alone. Dierlam also scored a couple of points, swatting away Bellenhaus's assertion of Braun serving as leader of the mess as, quote, downright absurd and far-fetched notion, because not only was most of Braun's wealth attributable and tied directly to Wirecard's share price, Braun is still, God help him, carrying the real estate loan for one of his family homes. Not the, not the pile in France, and I don't think the ski chalet, but, well, one of them. Against those loans, those real estate loans, against now zero-value shares. Ouch. The argument that Braun arranged for KPMG to carry out a forensic investigation into the events at Wirecard, hmm, perhaps a little less compelling of an argument for Durlam. And then the court recessed for the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Now, the trial will resume January 5th. And by the time you're listening to this, trial has resumed. Listeners, you can be certain I'll be covering the remaining 98 plus days of this trial and then some. So let's turn back to some other court news, because some of these developments also relate to Yaffa. Recall, some of those huge shareholder groups I told you about a few episodes back, the ones with large collectives of former Wirecard investors who were essentially filing actions against Yaffa, seeking to be placed at the top of the list of those to receive compensation from any monies Yaffa recovers. And remember, he's the insolvency administrator. That's the bankruptcy trustee. Not a good day in court for them a few weeks back. On November 22nd, Judge Suzanne Lakaura of the Munich Regional Court struck down the union investment suit against Wirecard. Now, union investment was a fund manager for the Volks und Reifersen Banken, and it had sued Jaffa, claiming 243 million euros as the damages that it said it suffered after Wirecard went BK in the summer of 2020. Now, during its negotiations at the beginning of October, UI had argued that the fund company would never, ever have bought Wirecard shares if Wirecard's management board had only been truthful about, well, 
its books and its dodgy ta situation. UI, rep by Quinn Emanuel, who also was repping some other investors claiming some 1.8 million. Ah, uh, Judge Lockhauer didn't buy their argument. Listeners, you know this. If one is going to invest, that is, become a part owner of a company, so to speak, one ought to conduct robust due diligence and not sit around hoping the company is telling the truth. FTX, anyone? The good judge told you I, you're an owner of sorts. You made the decision to buy Wirecard shares and thus invest in equity in the company. When companies go bankrupt, owners, e.g. you shareholders, get an opportunity to assert a claim only, only, if all creditors are satisfied, which almost never happens. As insolvency administrator Michael Yaffa's counsel, Liebscher, they are also to tell the judge that they were not in favor of shareholders receiving any recovered corporate assets ahead of creditors, argued to the court at an earlier hearing in early October, saying for the court to acknowledge shareholder claims would be a, quote, perverse result of the bankruptcy process, which is intended to protect creditors, not take further from them. So, you see, were the shareholders allowed to persist in their claims? The likely result would be creditors receiving two-thirds less of any recovered monies Yaffa comes up with. Essentially, these shareholder suits are arguing that Wirecard's creditors ought to cover their losses. <laughs> Kirkland and Ellis Truhand, a vehicle of K&E, representing the creditors of an EU $500 million bond from Wirecard, joined Yaffa as a further defendant against UI's actions. And side note, Liebsch is also repping Yaffa against E&Y to recover monies. Now, Judge Lakauer didn't take long to reach her decision. She dismissed UI's suit in just under 10 minutes, saying... Claims for damages under capital market law, German capital market law, cannot be registered as insolvency claims for the insolvency table. In other words, you can't now change the nature of your investment after the fact. Whether UI was deceived by Wirecard, it's completely irrelevant in this lawsuit. Is it over for all shareholder suits globally? No. In fact, Judge Lacour observed that really, the fundamental question of whether and under what circumstances shareholders can become creditors should ultimately only be clarified by the German Federal Court of Justice, Justice the BG, BGH, Germany's highest court. All Judge Lacour had been asked to rule on was whether or not under Germany's insolvency law, classifying shareholder claims as insolvency claims was appropriate and compatible with that body of bankruptcy law. The judge was not asked to determine if investors were defrauded or otherwise have a claim for damages. The basic rule really is that shareholders only participate in funds from an insolvency estate when senior creditors, such as lending banks, or those who have subscribed to a corporate bond have been fully compensated. Under German insolvency law, 
banks and bondholders absolutely must be served first. So for the time being, German shareholders remained second-class creditors under German insolvency law and thus aren't likely uh, to see a cent from the Wirecard insolvency assets. Now, based on the verdict, Jaffa could dismiss a significant number of claims against Wirecard. Recall, some 30,000-plus shareholders are demanding some 7 billion euros. Banks, social security funds, and other Wirecard creditors have filed claims of over EU 3.3 billion and a euro, sorry, EU. And of those lofty numbers, Yava has managed only to recover some 1 billion euros from the sale of the Wirecard beads and trinkets. Mind you, the roster of counsel for all of the interested parties, billable hours for this one, hearing alone, could have paid a chunk toward those losses. Tillop, Quinn, K&E, Freshfield, Schilling, good lord, the list went on. Really, guys, I hope you're discounting your rates or they'll never find, we often will never find a cent to pay anyone. And speaking of protecting investors, consumers, and creditors, listeners, did you note that Christoph Schulte, the head of Germany's FIU, the GZD, was forced to resign when it came to light that under a parliamentary inquiry that the FIU was sitting atop a backlog of some 100,000 suspicious transaction reports that it had yet to review. Oh, Now, let me put some of this in context. In the FATF Mutual Evaluation Report on Germany that was published in August of this past year, 2022, in 2020, in the report, the FIU had reported that in 2020 it had received a total of 144,000 STRs. Okay. Now, this was a significant increase from the prior five years. But, wait for it, because you can't make this stuff up. Until February 2018, when a digital FIU reporting database was established, the German FIU was receiving STRs by fax. Yeah, facsimile. Remember those old machines? And processing them manually. Oh. As the FATF report primly states, this led to a, quote, considerable backlog of STRs and delay in analysis and dissemination. But that was five years ago. In 2021, the FIU is understood to have received some 300,000 STRs. And yes, they did process two-thirds, whilst failing to report they'd been meaning to get around to that last 100,000, which rather contradicted what Schrote had re, uh, reassured the Bundestag his agency was on top of all filings. Oops. Again. And as if that little snafu didn't build confidence for investors in Germany, last month Barfen quietly released a press statement. <laughs> really, listeners, this is priceless stating that greater consumer protection was its core remit and that they were aiming to, quote, lead the way in this field and always keep their fingers on the pulse at all times. Let's just hope they have a pulse. Then they highlighted swift action they'd taken 
regarding an app whose buy button was conspicuous, but its cancel button less so. This was their example of their swift, swift action and new and improved Boffin. They said that in the wake of Wirecard, they really want to strengthen financial competence. How precisely? Well, they said they've started to modernize and they are, quote, because you can't make this up, expanding their social media presence. <laughs> That's certainly going to help with their responses to reports of market abuses, isn't it? Oh. Now, not to be outdone, Arpus expected in this past November, two months ago, to rule on EY's potential misconduct in the Wirecard debacle. And let's be honest, we all assumed it was going to involve punishing fines and possibly even EY's suspension in Germany. Uh, no. Arpus, not one to act hastily, postponed their decision until sometime later this month, January 23, at the earliest. I know, I know that, that they are understood to have authored a 3,000 plus page report and the decision's only been delayed by two months. But really, really, after all this time? All right, it may be due to the fact that they've assigned five investigators to the Wirecard EY matter. Can everybody count on your fingers? Five? <laughs> but given that after two and a half years, they are still understaffed by nearly 30%, is it that they just don't have the resources to handle conducting a genuine investigatory root cause analysis? Remember, lack of personnel was one of their excuses to the Bundestag IC when they were asked back in 2020, how they missed this decade of fraud and laundering by Wirecard. <laughs> so, investors in Germany, Inc., rest assured, not much, or not nearly as much, has changed as you thought. Let's see if Austria has learned any valuable lessons from Wirecard. After all, it was several of their citizens that helped steer this corporate Titanic into the iceberg. Only, I glance at the clock and I see, oops, that will mean I'll have to dump Austria into the next episode. Stay tuned for episode 36. That's it for today. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Tom. We're all caught up. Do tune in for next episode because it's a humdinger of espionage and treason. December has come and gone, but I wish you all a very happy new year. And number 10, eres tan hermosa como el juego. Muchas felicidades. And to all, may 2023 bring us more revelations and who knows, maybe even some greater collaborations. You've been listening to Lies, Spies and Corporate Crimes, The Wirecard Saga. I'm Akar Roger Gordon. I'll see you back here, same time, same place. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join us again for our next episode.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.